Good morning. This is God's word from Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Well, uh, this morning, Pastor Aaron is actually not with us. He's over at Martha Lake Baptist Church preaching. So if you were coming to hear him, sorry, you're here uh, with us, which we're so thankful for. We're, we're talking with Martha Lake Baptist Church about this idea of merging our churches. Some of you maybe have not heard that. Um, hopefully you have. There's more information on the website if you want to read up on that. But we're just really excited about how the Lord is leading us in this season. And we really want to be prayerful. We're being very prayerful. We're having a lot of conversations with the elders of Martha Lake Baptist. One of the intentional things we're doing is having... Um, their pastor, Pastor Jason, come over here to preach. Pastor Aaron's over there preaching. Kind of this pulpit swap. We're doing some other things like a prayer and baptism night um, that we talked about last week. But I'm going to actually invite Pastor Jason to join me. Pastor Jason is going to be... Can we welcome Pastor Jason? So it's been a joy to get to know Jason over the last past several months. Uh, actually, one of his six sons is a part of our student ministry. And it's been awesome having him with us. He's such a sweet guy. Uh, I see him here with us today. It's really cool to have him here. Um, Just getting to know your family, getting to know the elders at Martha Lake has been incredible. It's been a huge blessing for us. So um, thank you for being here today, for leading us through the teaching of God's word. And why don't we do this? Why don't I pray? And then I'll hand it off to you. Church, would you join me? Jesus, this is your church. Uh, We are, we are a part, we are the church, the people. And so Uh, As your people, we just want to come before you this morning uh, in humility and um, in worship. Lord, we we just thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for Martha Lake Baptist Church. Thank you for Pastor Jason. Uh, Pray for Aaron and and, uh, Martha Lake as they're uh, diving into the scriptures this morning in Colossians as well. Would you lead and guide our time? Holy Spirit, I pray you would speak through Jason, um, that you would soften our hearts to receive this message that you have for us today. Uh, we love you, and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Sound City Bible Church, for having me. And, um, and, th- and thank you also for praying. I know those of you that have heard about our exploration of this possible merger have been praying with us, and that's, that's what we want. We want to make sure that we're seeking God's direction. We want to go where He's leading. We don't want to hold back out of fear. We don't want to rush ahead out of arrogance, but we want to be exactly on track with God. And so thank you for praying with us about that. And thank you for this opportunity. It's a great idea to, uh, to, to swap pulpits. Now, we don't do that lightly because we value the Word of God and uh, we, we want to make sure it's handled rightly. Uh, but uh, that's part of what we've already come to understand about both churches. We both have the same approach to God's Word. We both value it, hold it up as inerrant and, uh, and completely uh, sufficient for the church. And so we have no 
reservations about uh, Pastor Aaron preaching there and, and me preaching here. So thank you for having me. I do want to take just a minute to let you know a little bit more about me and especially about my family. And so uh, Melissa and two of our boys are here and they're going to come stand with me. Uh, the first service only got the picture, but here you have in living color, this is one half of our family. Yeah, this is one half of our family. There are eight of us. Um, this is my wife, Melissa. We've been married 20 years this year. Yeah. Um, and we, are, we have plans to go to Hawaii to celebrate that. We've never been. So in October... Uh, a couple months after our anniversary, we hope to, to be celebrating on the beach in Hawaii. Just us, no kids. That's just as huge as going to Hawaii, actually. Um, but, uh, but we have uh, six boys. Luke is our oldest. He's about to turn 14 in one month from today. Luke's 14. And Jonah is our second, and he uh, is 12 and a half. Yeah. 11. He will be 12. <laughs> Man, if I can't get the first two straight, what about all the rest? He will be 12 in August, right? All right. There we go. Um, and then, so we've got uh, Gideon and uh, Alexander and our twins, Thomas and Titus, and they're all in, enjoying the wonderful kids' ministry. You can see the picture there. Uh, our three-year-old is not a giant. It's just forced perspective. He was the closest to the camera. Um, you could tell he was really enthused about that picture. That's just it. When you've got six kids, you just got to take the best picture, and it's not going to be perfect. You just got to get used to that. But anyway, we love our family. We are, here's our theme in our family. We are blessed. Amen. We are blessed beyond measure. And, uh, and we just feel God's love. And that comes, we feel that love coming from, from the church, uh, but also just from who he's made us to be. And so... We're overjoyed to be serving God together here in this area. Thank you, guys. We, uh, we're originally from Tennessee. Uh, that will become apparent the longer I talk. You'll start to hear the twang come out. Uh, but uh, we, we, Melissa and I both grew up and uh, met in Tennessee, and that's where we began ministry together. Uh, I have a degree in student ministry and 13 years working in three different churches in Tennessee, working with students. And then uh, about 2010, I felt God stirring my heart, and I went to Melissa and I said, I think God's calling me to be a pastor. And uh, in other words, like a lead pastor of a church. And she said, no. <laughs> I married a youth minister. I, I married the guy that does the lock-ins and the trips and the fun stuff. Uh, but, but together we went on that journey and, and both since God's calling to that. And so then on top of that, we had a missional sense to our calling that uh, we weren't just going to recreate the same ministries that were on every street corner in the South. We felt called to place our lives, our ministry, our family, where there's significant gospel need, where the number of churches... Uh, to the number of lost is a huge ratio, and we want to live among people that need to hear the gospel. And so that's what we've uh, tried to do. We've, we answered that missional call and came out here to Martha Lake Baptist Church. Uh, it will be nine years in June. We've been there. And uh, since then, God's added three more sons to our family. So we have three Tennessee boys, three Washington boys. 
and a whole bunch of family back home that uh, misses the kids. They don't care about us, but they miss the kids. So uh, we, uh, our family is a homeschooling family, which means that Melissa is a glutton for punishment. Not only does she have six boys, but she runs a homeschooling home, and uh, she's fantastic at it. She is excellently gifted at managing chaos. That's what you get when you get a house full of boys, but she does it well. Our boys are super smart, just like I'm sure all your kids are, but ours are are smart, and they apply themselves, and we love homeschooling, and it works great for us. And uh, we also, uh, we love the outdoors, especially I love hunting and camping and hiking and being outside. We almost never get to do any of that because we, every time we start to enjoy being outdoors, it seems like we're having more babies and you have to stay at home all the time. So we're just getting to the place I think we're going to start to recapture some of that fun stuff outdoors-wise. But enough about us. Uh, we're here to focus on the Word of God. And it's so exciting that our churches are studying Colossians together. It, it, we didn't plan last fall's study on Daniel, but, but Sound City was studying Daniel, and we studied Daniel kind of independently. It was really amazing that God was doing that. And then we intentionally lined up for Colossians at the start of this year. And so it's a joy to go through that together. In our passage today, we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, verse 24, through 2, verse 5. And I want us to look at it from this perspective. Let us strive to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, would you apply your word to our lives? Would you shape us? Would you mold us? Would you ground us in your truth? And would you spur us on to take action in faith and obedience to what you call us to do in response to your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we read uh, the majority of our text earlier, and as we were listening to that, uh, you, you probably heard Paul start with I. He was starting with himself. And when you think about this letter to the Colossians, um, it's meant to be read at once. It's not meant to be broken up and studied, but that's just the way we can handle it in significant pieces like that. But so his discussion of his sufferings, he, he come right on the heels of this beautiful Christological hymn about who is Christ and what he has done for us. And then immediately Paul goes into talking about my sufferings, Paul's sufferings. And it might sound a little arrogant, it might sound out of place, But I want us to see how it's not. But he says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my suffering for you. And then uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, For I want you to know how greatly I struggle. I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not yet seen me in person. So Paul's emphasizing, he's focusing on his struggles, his labor, his work. And so let's think about this. Paul was striving. He was struggling. He was working. He was suffering, and he was laying down his life for the church and for the gospel. That's what Paul leads with in this section. And he's emphasizing these struggles. Now, let's think for just a moment what those struggles were. At the time he wrote this letter, we know this is one of the the prison epistles. Paul was in prison. It was a house arrest, the first Roman imprisonment for Paul, roughly from AD 60 to AD 62. And he was, it was a house arrest scenario, uh, but he was confined. And, but that was just the, to the, the, the start of, or the 
just kind of the tip of the iceberg for Paul's sufferings. He explains more about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, Many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. That's Paul summing up his laboring, his suffering, his striving for the churches. And then we know that there was a second Roman imprisonment between A.D. 64 and A.D. 67 that ended with Paul's execution. According to the historian Eusebius, that execution was by beheading, since Paul was a Roman citizen, not subject to crucifixion. Clearly, Paul suffered for the church, and he labored for the proclamation of the gospel. Now, someone might ask Paul, maybe in response to one of his emphasis in his writings about his sufferings, they might, they might have asked Paul, if you're God's servant, why are you suffering? Doesn't your God protect you from sufferings? Doesn't God deliver you? If you're really following God's path, would he lead you into sufferings? That's a very tempting place to go for us, thinking that if I'm on the right path, then it's going to be an easy path. If I'm following God closely, there won't be suffering involved. Things will be smooth. It will be easy. But do we really expect God to protect us from our suffering? Or like Paul Do we expect God to work through our sufferings for his purposes? You see, following Jesus, being on mission for the gospel, serving God's church, all of these things often include and sometimes require suffering and laboring and striving. J.D. Greer says this about suffering for the gospel. He says, suffering is the appointed means by which God has ordained that he is going to bring salvation to the world. That includes Christ's suffering, but also includes the suffering of those who are involved in the gospel work. So how do we handle suffering when following Jesus? This is important. We have to have a theology of suffering when we follow Jesus. Pastor Timothy Keller says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers us to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. It's all a matter of our orientation. Are we living for the now, or are we living for God's eternal purposes? So, how did Paul handle suffering? What was Paul's attitude during these sufferings? Well, he gives it away. When he talks about his sufferings, 
It's not, it doesn't come across as him saying, pity me, look at me, the, the poor servant of God. No, he offers his example as one of joy and willful, willing uh, submission to whatever path God has for him, especially this calling he has. Even as Paul saw the end of his life approaching, he was still filled with joy and willingly following the path. 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, this is one of the letters Paul wrote in his second Roman imprisonment. And he could see the time of his death coming. He could see his execution looming. And he wrote to Timothy, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only me, but all those who have loved his appearing. When Paul's writing about this, about his sufferings and the view of his own death, the laying down his life, he's not writing with regret. He's writing with joy. Saying, it was worth it to serve my God, to serve his church, to lay down my life, even through sufferings. He said, it was worth it because of the Lord that we serve. So why did Paul bring up his sufferings in this letter to the church at Colossae and his other letters? Why was Paul sometimes emphasizing his sufferings? Well, Paul wanted to show in this case, the church at Colossae, how much he was investing in the work of the gospel. Sometimes we don't truly grasp the value of something until we know how much it costs. You ever been in that situation? Paul is showing the church at Colossae, this is a weighty subject, the salvation of God's people and their edification to grow up into maturity. This is weighty, and I am laying down my life for it, so see the value in it. Also, the issues he's going to bring up, he wants them to see. These are not light, simple, momentary issues. If I'm writing to you this letter uh, that he's writing to Colossians, if I'm writing this, he says, in the midst of my deep suffering, it must mean something. Otherwise, I'd give my time to something else. But this means something because I'm writing to you in the time of this labor. And, and he wants to get their attention. He wants them to see this, isn't, uh, this is not some light, simple letter he's writing. There's weight behind it because he's about to address them on weighty topics about correcting their orientation, helping them ground their faith in the one true Christ, and giving them instructions and warnings that come later in the letter. And so, how did Paul do this? Take up and persevere in all of these sufferings, these laborings, because, jo- because Paul had a joyous and compelling motivation. And that motivation was the mystery of God revealed. In this passage, he spends quite a bit of time talking about the mystery of God. And it, 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 that's a theme throughout the Bible, but especially in the New Testament and especially in Paul's writings. Uh, the mystery of God. That's what will motivate Paul to pour out his life, to suffer, to strive, and to do so gladly. The mystery of God. But it was the mystery of God revealed. Paul had a vision of the glory of God on display, and he, he used this phrase, the mystery of God, to describe it. Now, mystery, 
It's, it, it's, it's not what we might think of something uh, that we could never figure out, something that's enigmatic. We uh, might dis, dis, uh, dismiss something, saying, oh, we'll, we'll never know. That was, it's just a mystery. That's not the way the Bible uses this term. The Bible is using this term as something once hidden, but known to some and now revealed. Let's, let's look at this uh, definition of mystery. That which is seeking, uh, secret, hidden, or beyond normal human understanding, although it may be revealed or disclosed to certain people. The Greek word mysterion does not usually refer to something puzzling that needs to be figured out. Rather, it refers to something that cannot possibly be figured out unless it is revealed by someone possessing inside information. A divine mystery, however, is something that can only be revealed by God and is the primary sense in which the word is used in the Bible. So God knows. God has this plan. God has this purpose. God has his redemptive story that he is working, and he's revealed parts of it. And he's revealed specific parts to some people. But only God knows the whole story, and only God can reveal it to his people And I saw this really great illustration of this idea of mystery connected to our study in Daniel. Uh, F.F. Bruce talks about this when he says the word mystery, as used by Paul and other New Testament writers, has an Old Testament background in the Aramaic part of the book of Daniel. There, the divine purpose is communicated in two stages. And you'll remember this from the study in Daniel. The first stage is a mystery, such as when Nebuchadnezzar sees the, the dream about the image That's described there in Daniel 2. And then the second stage of God's revelation is the interpretation, such as when Daniel's brought into that story, and God gives Daniel an interpretation to explain the dream to the king, an explanation that Daniel himself has received directly from God. And so that's an example of what we're talking about here when we talk about the mystery of God. So Paul's saying, We are at a place, we're at a time, uh, a place in time in history where all of that mystery of God has now been revealed. And this mystery of God has been revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of the mystery. And this is so important for the Colossians because we're going to see as we go uh, on into chapter 2 that they're being misled They're being misled to look elsewhere for a revelation of God's truth, God's mystery. They look at this philosophy, look at this uh, this idea of how to access the spiritual realm, look at this uh, the access to angels or to visions, and that will give you the revelation of God's truth and God's mystery. But Paul's saying, no, that's all false. All the revelation we need of the mystery of God comes in Jesus Christ. Look nowhere else. But look in Christ, and you will find it all, the perfect and sufficient revelation of God. And so, Paul had this passion for the mystery of God now revealed in Christ. And it was a motivation for him to take up the sufferings willingly as he lived out this gospel work. Here's some examples of the mystery of God revealed in the Scripture. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. 
Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. What a joy it is for us to live in the time when that mystery of God has been revealed. But Peter gives us a little bit of a hint of what the the angels, what their perspective of all this is when he says in 1 Peter 1, 12, these things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Peter's saying the people that are preaching the word to you, that are showing you Christ, that are teaching him as the mystery revealed, we have this mystery revealed to us and even the angels would long to be in our spot to see the mystery of God unfolding and now revealed in Christ. And this joy, this passion is what drives people like Paul to be able to lay, out, lay down their lives for the church and for the spread of the gospel. Now, this joyous, compelling motivation, it, we can see it come alive in people throughout history. And I, so I want to give you two examples of this. One, these are probably familiar examples for you. First of all is Jim Elliot. Now, Jim Elliot, born uh, in Portland, Oregon, actually, just uh, in 1927, when he was 22 years old, as he was growing up and understanding the mystery of God revealed in Christ, and uh, he was set on fire with a passion for, for Jesus Christ. And he, uh, he had this journal entry that was discovered after his death. When he was 22 years old, he wrote this down. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. But that wasn't just a pithy little saying that he heard a pastor preach or he read in a book. That may have been how he came across it. But it helped plant the joy, the passion of the mystery of Christ revealed in his heart deep enough that it became a motivation for him. And you, if you know the story of Jim Elliot, uh, he was called into missions. And he, he left uh, well, once he graduated from uh, school. And I don't even remember if he graduated. He might have left early. But the, he went on to the mission field in the early 50s, began to work in South America and uh, work to reach unengaged jungle peoples in the tribes of South America. And, and a, a girl that he had met at college also moved there independently, kind of following her own call. And they were serving with a, a group of young people there, reaching out into the jungles. And they, uh, he and Elizabeth decided to marry. They married. And uh, a couple years later had a daughter. Ten months after Jim and Elizabeth's daughter was born, Jim Elliott and four of his uh, missionary buddies finally broke through to reach this unengaged people group. They actually had uh, a plane, and they would fly around. They would spot these uh, huts and uh, villages in the jungle. And they found a group of people that nobody had ever reached before. And they knew just a few words in their language. And uh, they actually would drop a bucket down with a rope and send messages and little gifts. And finally, they found a little beach on the river where they felt like it was just long enough they could land their little plane, their bush plane, and try to make contact. So they did. But sadly, just three days after making that first initial contact, the, the tribe speared them to death. Now, you might think that, that would be where the story ends and, oh, great, you know, good job, Jim and his buddies. They had a passion for God, but it didn't go anywhere. It just got them killed. But that was just the beginning of the story because Elizabeth and, and her daughter continued to work in that area. 
And they had the opportunity two years after Jim Elliot's death to go and live among this very tribe that had just speared her husband two years earlier. And actually, they lived and they served and they worked among these people and many of them came to faith, even the ones that threw the spears and killed Jim Elliot and his four buddies. They came to Christ. That was the heart behind the work that Jim Elliot was about, that motivation. I want to give you one more example of this. A hundred years previous to that was John G. Patton. He was born in Scotland in, the, in 1824, and he felt a call to missions. He felt a call to reach a, a, a set of islands. We know this island now as Vanuatu in the Pacific. Uh, one of the Survivor series was filmed there. That's the only reason I know it. But, uh, but it was, at the time, it was named by Captain Cook, uh, as the New Hebrides Islands, because it, it reminded him of the Hebrides Archipelago in Scotland. And I think that was why John Patton was, was drawn there, because he's from Scotland, and, he, and they had this connection to these South Pacific Islands. But there was one particular island they really wanted to get to because it was unreached. And just a few years earlier, two London missionaries had tried to land on that island to make contact and start spreading the gospel. But it, as soon as they hit the beach... In sight of the ship that had dropped them off, and they rowed their little boat onto the beach, and the tribesmen came out to to greet them and fell upon them, attacked them, killed them, and in sight of the ship began to eat them on the beach. And so news got back to, uh, to England that you can't go there. They're cannibals. And as John G. Patton was making his rounds to raise support, raise money to take to take his wife and go and, and minister there to those people and spread the gospel, someone brought this up. Uh, a well-intended, a well-intending uh, elder in his church said to him, if you're to go there, you will be eaten by cannibals. And, and quick-witted Patton responded this way, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave where you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. That's a huge statement. And we would not take it quite seriously except he backed it up with his life. And he took his, his new wife, and uh, just a few uh, weeks after marrying, they set sail. By the time they reached the New Hebrides, the baby was on the way. But within uh, just weeks of their landing and starting to, to reach out, the, the, the baby was born, and the mother died, the baby died, and he had to begin his ministry there, his work amid hardships and heartache and struggles and dangers and deprivation, but he persevered because he had a motivation, like Paul's motivation, of the mystery of God revealed in Christ that all the world needed to hear, even a cannibalistic tribe on a small island in the Pacific Ocean. And the people did come over the years. The people came to faith, and many people throughout that region on those islands came to faith and but the work of, through the work of Patton, he was able to translate their, 
or understand their language, translate the New Testament into their language, have it printed, and teach them to read, also helping them uh, print uh, a hymn book so they could have worship services, and, and the islands became Christ-following. But this motivation, it's not just for Paul. It's not just for these heroes of the faith, these giants of church history that have gone before us, these pioneer missionaries. It's not just for them, but it's for us for God's church now. We can have this same motivation when we see the grandeur, the the glory of the mystery of God revealed in Christ. So what that translates for us is this. We have a role to play now for the completion of God's gospel work on earth. The next part of what Paul says here, he says something very interesting. He said, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. And I want to focus in on that highlighted phrase for you there, that Paul has this idea that he's completing in his flesh, in his sufferings, in his laborings, he's completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if we're not careful... We can think that is heretical. What is Paul saying? That Christ left something undone? Christ was unable to complete the salvific work for which he died? No, that's not what Paul's getting at. See, nothing was lacking in the power of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Remember from last week's study that Jesus is the preeminent reconciler. He is the only one that can save through his death on the cross. So nothing was lacking in his power to save. Nothing was lacking in his scope to save through his cross. Jesus's blood of the cross makes us at peace with God. Jesus is the savior for the whole world. So in those senses, nothing is lacking from the work that Jesus did on the cross. But that's not what Paul was getting at. The only thing lacking in the work Jesus did on the cross is what God had reserved for his church to do. In other words, Christ wasn't intending to do it. He had reserved it for his church to do it, and that was the spread of the gospel to all peoples. One pastor has said it this way. Christ's cross was for propitiation. Our cross is for propagation. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation. Now let's think about Christ's cross for just a moment. In case you're, you're new to this discussion or if you're, you're visiting with us, we want to make sure we all are on the same page. Jesus died on the cross, but not for anything he had done. He was the Son of God, eternally existing and made perfect God, perfect son through the miraculous virgin birth, lived a holy, sinless life, proclaiming the message that the kingdom of God is near, repent and follow me, and then died on the cross, the righteous for the sinner, the innocent for the guilty, the son of God for the enemies of God. Jesus died on the cross was buried and victoriously rose again on the third day, 
conquering death, conquering sin, conquering the grave, and assuring us of eternal life. Jesus completed everything he intended to do. There is no more, we saw this last week, no more work for us to do to be saved. It's all in Jesus, and we put our faith in him. We are made at peace with God. We are made righteous. We are made holy, and we have the assurance of eternal life with God. But here's the only thing lacking. That message has to get out so everyone that hears has the opportunity to put faith in Jesus and also be saved. That's what Paul says is lacking because God had reserved it for his church to do. And Paul was saying he had a commission in that. He had been commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to take the message of justification by faith in Christ alone to the whole world. And he says this in Ephesians 3 also. You can see that here. For this reason, I, Paul, a, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then later in this same passage, he describes the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, he says, this mystery has been revealed. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. He says, I have a commission. I'm carrying out my work. That's why he went about doing his work of starting churches, training and appointing elders, sending out missionaries, even knitting together. If you read Acts and and, uh, Paul's writings, he's knitting together a network of churches for mutual support and edification. And he's making disciples and growing them to maturity. He says, this is my purpose, even in this passage for today. He says, I have this, this goal. He says, I, we proclaim Christ. We warn and we teach everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says, I labor for this. I strive for this. That's verse 28 of chapter 1. He says, this is my calling. This is what I am about. But here's the thing. It's not just for Paul. We all have a role to play in completing this gospel work that God has set us about. So Paul was using everything he could use, including his house arrest. During his time of house arrest, when this letter was written, he was having people come to him. He was visiting with church leaders and missionaries and equipping them and training them. He was sending out letters to go and encourage the churches and correct this and and give them words uh, that would uh, aid them in their growth. We have to use whatever is at our disposal for spreading the gospel. Back during the time when radio first began to to be popular in the United States, there was a pastor, an evangelist, who had a missional vision like Paul. And he began to take the gospel of Jesus to the airwaves, a pioneer in this. His name was Theodore Epp. And he, he, when people would uh, question his motives and his, uh, his, his use of technology in spreading the gospel, he would say this, God has given believers the responsibility of spreading the gospel to all the world, and we need to use all that is at our disposal to accomplish this task. So Paul was using his sufferings, even his imprisonment, to further the spread of the gospel. What do we have to offer? We have our freedom. Freedom in this country 
to assemble and have worship like this. Freedom to proclaim the message of the gospel from the Bible. Freedom of, of speech to, to, uh, to say publicly that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But we also, we have technology. We can reach around the globe in seconds through technology. We also have the ability to travel to any part of the globe in just hours. Your pastor, Jamin, he's there in India uh, for this week for work. Just hop on a plane and you're there. We also have, comparatively to the most of the world and to history, we have relative wealth at our disposal and leisure time. I mean, we're not out chopping wood to build a fire to heat our home and cook our food. We have, we have so much time. What are we willing to use to to complete our part of spreading the gospel to the world? Are we motivated by the mystery of God revealed in Christ? But if you are like me and you start looking at people like Paul or people like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot or John Patton and you start seeing these people and you say, wow, those, they're giants. They were so much better than me at this. Who am I? What do I have to offer? I'm weak. I'm faulty. I am limited. What can I do? Well, I I would, first I would say, each of those that we would call a giant, they probably felt the same way. But here, they, they, they knew something that we need to know too. And Paul says this very clearly. That the power by which we will carry out this gospel work, it's not our power. It's the strength of God in us. That's the power we need. And it doesn't come from us. Paul very clearly says this in verse 29 of chapter 1. I labor for this. He's talking about the maturity of believers in Christ. Striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. He says, I have access to power, to strength. It doesn't come from me, but it is in me. So how did Paul access and live in and strive in the strength of God? It's a lot simpler than we think. He walked with the Lord daily. He feasted on the word of God. He fellowshiped with the people of God. And here's the one that, that probably trips us up the most. He stepped out in faith for the purposes of God. Because that's when God delivers the strength. Not when we're holding back, saying, God, if you would only give me strength, I would go and do this. If you would only address this anxiety I have, then I would go and do this. If you would only uh, help me be eloquent in, in sharing the gospel, then I would go and do this. But see, Paul and others, they, they knew this. You never need the strength. Until you've already stepped out in faith. So here's here's what we're called to do. Trust God will supply the strength we need, the power we need, the provisions we need, and step out even before they arrive. And God will give us the strength that works powerfully in us to complete the work of the gospel that he's reserved for us to do. Now, what does that look like for us? Well, there, there are big things that we try to do together as, as a church. Missional efforts and, and mission trips and 
connecting to our community. But, but right now I want us to think about our personal lives. Who are the people in your life that need to hear that Jesus is the Savior and they need to hear it through your lips? Maybe, maybe there's somebody in your life that you don't even know where they stand with God, but you need to start a relationship with them or a conversation, laying the groundwork. Maybe even you have a calling that you've been trying to ignore. That you know God has called you in some way to serve the church or to spread the gospel, and you've been ignoring it and pushing it back. We need to be like Paul and step out in faith and obedience, and God will supply the strength. Will you pray with me? Lord, there is no Savior but Jesus Christ. And he is the mystery of God revealed. And what a joy it is that we get to be on the side of history that sees him revealed. Lord, would you make that for us a foundational motivation for our living our lives that would even empower us, Lord, and and motivate us to take up suffering if that's what's required. But it would lead us to striving, to working, to laboring for the proclamation of Christ and the building up of his church. And Lord, you know that we're weak. You know that we're limited. You know that we get in our own heads And we let things distract us. Lord, help us to take that step of faith. Trusting you will supply the strength we need. You will be the power that flows through us. Because we have already stepped out in obedience to complete what you have reserved for your church at this time to do. Our part in taking the gospel of Jesus to the whole world. Even when it means the person across the street. Or sitting next to us. So, Lord, we just give you, we give you our obedience and our faith. Would you make us strong to that? Would you make us fit for the cause, not in our own strength, but in yours? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm so thankful for God's word, and I'm so thankful for the preaching of God's word, the teaching of us. Thank you, Pastor Jason. Uh, We're going to have the young students come in now and join us. The book of Colossians argues for being grounded in truth. And Paul says, so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Truth was needed in the church at at Colossae and in our world today. We are daily confronted by untruths and theology based on man's own limited understanding and not on God's truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because God loves us, he came into his creation and dwelt among man as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the sinless life we could not live. He took our punishment on the cross for every sin we have committed, for every sin we are committing now, and every sin that we will commit. As believers who trust in this truth, we remember and proclaim our Savior in communion. But if you have not yet believed God's truth, if Jesus is not your Savior, 
your truth. If you have not confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then call out to Jesus now, confessing you are a sinner in need of a Savior, asking for forgiveness to be born again. If this is your desire and your prayer, Celebrate communion with us. And after service, talk to someone. You can go to the Connect Desk. You can go to the prayer team or anybody with a badge or a lanyard or perhaps just the person next to you. But reach out. We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you in your newfound faith. So as we go to communion, go ahead and take out the elements. And while I read from 1 Corinthians, if by chance you didn't get one on the way in, I've got... A few right here, or you can get it at the entrances there. God's word tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he's going to be coming again for us, you guys. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's do that now. But before taking the bread and the juice, be sure to follow Paul's instructions. Take a moment now. Come before the Father in prayer and reflection, confessing sin, remembering our Savior and his work on the cross for each one of us with a thankful heart. Father, we come into your presence only by the blood and in the name of Jesus. Direct our thoughts, our words, and prayers now for our good and your glory before we take the elements of communion. Amen.